I read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 20, the sermon text being 15 through 20. Last time, as you know, we looked at verse 14 alone, but also in doing so looked at the whole of the passage. Well, here, having seen the general proposition, we see how he analyzes and explains that statement. So beginning in verse 14... For we know uh, that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. for for, For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do. It is no longer I who do it. But sin that dwells in me. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven. uh, A most difficult text. And yet one which is uh, at the same time incredibly helpful to believers. We ask you that now through the preaching you might shed light, greater light on your word, and that you might drive it more closely uh, into our own experiences and into our hearts and enable us to be helped by your word through the preaching, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as, as many of you remember who were here last time, we were analyzing last time the I of chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. I is the most common word. Paul uh, is using it several times, it seems, every verse. He's analyzing himself, and he's either uh, speaking of his own experience as a believer, battling with sin. Uh, That is uh, the more common view. It seems, uh, I think I can say that that is the view generally held in this congregation. There's also uh, the other view held by the ancient fathers and which came back into prevalence in the 20th century uh, that Paul is assuming a position for the sake of argument. He's bringing himself back under the law and he's being he's battling and being defeated by sin as he's under the law. So he's either unregenerate or regenerate. Now, this led to some inter- interesting conversation, uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad for that to happen. Some of you telling me after the sermon you were discussing it, some of you uh, discussing it with me uh, after the evening sermon. And uh, I made a comment, which I was I was interested to find countered in my reading of Martin Lloyd-Jones during the week, I made this comment. I said, you know, I love Lloyd-Jones, but it seems that in this rare instance, his intellect got the best of him. Well, I was interested to find, uh, since he took actually what I call the third position, I was interested to find him countering that accusation, saying of the Puritans, their pastoral theology often seems to be superior to their actual exegesis of Scripture. (laughs) Uh, So he's saying the opposite. He's saying, you know, uh, in this rare instance, the Puritans let their pastoral hearts run away with them. Well, understanding uh, that you see the difficulty in interpreting this passage, we are caught between two positions, although uh, taking one of them decidedly and taking, uh, for my part, the position that Paul is describing his own experience. When he says I, he means himself, not merely for the sake of argument, but actually depicting his own experience as a believer. Uh, what, what we could say about these verses is that Paul is here analyzing or offering his analysis of the believer in sin. 
Now, we have to be careful here as soon as we say that. It's very useful from that standpoint to say, here we have in Scripture the most helpful exposition of the believer in sin. That is to say, uh, and Owen talks about this quite a bit in his book, Indwelling Sin, that the regenerate new man in Christ still has, uh, as part of his person, uh, sin dwelling in him with which he must contend and conflict all of his days. And if you don't understand that, you'll never understand yourself. And you'll never understand uh, the Christian life and the Christian experience. But as soon as we say that, we have to be careful. And here is where the other side comes on and uh, comes in and says, you know, you're, you're depicting things in a very dangerous way because Paul has just asked in chapter 6, verse 1, shall we live in sin that grace may abound? Or shall we continue in sin? Or how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So that, that, that is a way of depicting things. The believer living in sin. And Paul is setting that aside. And yet what he is saying is that sin still lives in us. Understand the difference. And you will understand the difference between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who famously said, although I can't confirm this, who said, the believer does not live in sin, but sin lives in the believer. You know what? As soon as I say that, I remembered it's Calvin. It's not Spurgeon. It's Calvin who said that. The believer can never live in sin. Certainly not. But sin still lives in him. And it is this that leads him to say, yes, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That's what he says in verse 14. As we go beyond verse 14, what we find in verses 15 through 20, and then uh, as the third sermon, verses 20 through 25, or 21 through 25, we find him expounding what he means. I, I know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, soul, and sin. Now, this is what I mean. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Again, explaining the sense in which He means, I am carnal, I am sold under sin. He is describing, and this is the key thought, not just of this passage, but of the next, the contradiction of desire and practice. I desire one thing, but I do another. I desire not to do something, but I do it. The contradiction of in desire and practice. It is in that sense that Paul is saying of himself as a believer. I am carnal, sold under sin. I find that what I what I want to do, I do not do. And what I do not want to do, that I do. And why is that? Well, that's another question he's going to answer. It's, a, it's, a, it's an answer we want to know, though, isn't it? Because I think we can all relate to Paul here. And you see what he says first of all. He says, I don't understand myself. I am perplexed to find that as a result of the new birth, as a result of regeneration, and, and even... My own knowledge that sin shall not and cannot now have dominion over me. Still, I find that I sin. How perplexing that is. Not only to Paul, but to us. Well, from this, he infers something else in verse 16. He says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. He's saying this, the very fact that he disapproves of his own conduct, that is when he sins, his actions contradict his desire, this confirms his agreement with the law, namely that it is good. You remember he said that earlier. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, just and good. And he asked the question in verse 13, has, that, uh, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin 
It's sin that was killing me through the law. And it was sin that it was sin that was appearing sinful beyond measure through the law. That's what he came to see. But Paul is saying his frustration is not with the law. His frustration is with himself. His inability to keep the law is his own problem, not the law's. I'm not blaming the law, Paul says, for my sin. I agree with it even as I break it. Thus, he's still answering the question, is the law sin? No, it isn't. The law is not sin. I am sin. I am carnal, sold under sin. I am the sinner. From there, he says something else that is highly interesting in verse 17. He says, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You see, he's answering the question, why do I sin? What is it really that makes me break the law that I agree is good and that I I uh, will later say uh, that I love, that I delight in, in the inner man. What is it, in other words, that explains this frustrating experience that Paul is uh, recounting here, that I desire one thing, but I do another, uh, as a new man, a new creature in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul says, surely not myself for this reason. I love the law. I agree with it. I don't desire to break it. The explanation is not that I hate the law, in other words, that I want to sin. That's the explanation of the unbeliever. That is not the explanation of the believer. And yet he still breaks it. What is the explanation? The explanation is this. Sin dwells in me. It's not I who do it, Paul says, but sin that dwells in me. Sin dwells in me. And thus he introduces sin as part of the equation, even for the new man. Sin is still part of the picture. You see, he says, it is in me. And thus, sense, and thus, in a sense, it is part of me. It's who I am. I am carnal. I am sold under sin. Why? Because part of me, a great part of me, is fleshly, is sinful. And yet at the same time, it's not who I am. Because it causes me to do that which I would not do. Do you see him depicting the conflict in verse 17? It's no longer I who do it. Not in my innermost self. Not the part of me that is really me. The new man who's born again. The Christian man. It isn't me. It's sin that dwells in me. Paul is describing not only a conflict but I use the word once more, a contradiction. There is a contradiction in the experience of the Christian man. There is the spiritual part. There is the sinful part. I I, I will explain that uh, shortly. Uh, But in verse 18, he then explains the sense of what he means when he says, It isn't I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Again, that is the explanation of what he means. He's talking about what he finds in himself, in me. And on this point, he's even more specific when he clarifies uh, that is in my flesh. In me, that is in my flesh, which is part of me. Nothing good dwells. Nothing good. For that is where he finds sin in himself. And thus, on account of this, his will to do the good is frustrated. It is frustrated by this contrary power or principle in himself called the flesh or the presence of sin in his flesh. Where does sin dwell? It dwells in the flesh. Whose flesh? Paul's or yours or mine. 
I am frustrated, Paul says, in my desire to do the good by this other power. I'm kept from doing it. I'm held back by myself. In verse 19, he restates the thought of verse 15. He says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. That's exactly what he says in verse 15. Only here he's restating it to explain the sense of what he means in the second part of verse 18. But to perform, uh, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For as he says, I do what I do not wish, and what I wish I do not do, and so forth. But finally in verse 20, again, he restates something. He restates what he said in verse 17. Verse 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There you see that thought stated a second time. What is really the cause of this frustrating experience. It isn't what is true of my heart or my will. It isn't what is true of the inward man. It is the presence of sin which is dwelling in my flesh. The reason it isn't I who do it, Paul is saying, is be, uh, but, but sin that dwells in me is because the sin he commits he doesn't want to do. Therefore, something else must be responsible for causing him to do that which he does not want to do. And, and thus, the picture is basically complete. The answer is sin. The answer is sin, which dwells in the believer. Now, as we go on in verse 21 and following, he will state it in terms of two laws. The law of the mind and the law of sin. Uh, and, and we'll get to that next time. But as I say, the, the picture is basically complete. And, and, and from this exposition of these six verses I would offer these seven inferences mostly drawn from verse 18 although the first of which is drawn from verse 17 and verse 20 and that is simply sin dwells in the believer sin takes up its residence in the believer this is an important doctrine it's something that we have to have clear in our minds or, or as I, I said earlier we'll never understand ourselves we'll never understand uh, the ongoing sense of conflict and even of defeat and uh, despair that we experience in the Christian life. Why am I like this? Why do I go on sinning though I've been renewed and though God has broken the dominion of sin? The answer is that sin still dwells in you. Where does it dwell? It dwells in your flesh, but your flesh is still part of who you are. It was this thought that led Owen to write his famous work. I have a collection of three works here, but uh, the fir- uh, the, or not the first of which, but uh, perhaps the most important of which is indwelling sin in believers. And, and, and Owen says that there are remainders of it, that is sin, abiding in believers after their regeneration and conversion to God, as the scriptures abundantly testify. He speaks of the power of indwelling sin unto believers. He says he takes for granted that it is the condition of a regenerate person. If if this is a subject which interests you, I would say, well, read Romans 7, but then read Owen. Read Owen indwelling sin. The second inference is this. He identifies himself with the flesh, for it is his flesh. Obviously, we recognize there is a duality present in believers. There is the spiritual part, which is good, and there is the fleshly part, which is bad, where sin dwells. 
But uh, the fleshly part is just as much Paul as the spiritual part. It's who he is. But the two are not the same. And thus he says as a third inference that the fleshly part, we're, we're now in verse 18, the fleshly part is devoid of good. I find, he says, or I know that, I find is verse 21, but verse 18, I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. As though to say the flesh is no good. Or as he says in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. That's the first of the two laws. Sin is dwelling in me. And what is sin? Well, it's the opposite of the law. The law is holy, just, and good, but sin is the total contrast to that. It is evil and holy and bad. Evil is present in me, Paul says, where in my flesh. And yet my flesh is part of me. It is my flesh. Thus I am carnal, sold under sin. Fourth, he, this confirms the sense in which sin dwells in the believer, not in the better part, the inner man. No, there he is free from sin's dominion. There he delights in the good and detests the bad. Why then does he do it? Why does he do the bad he doesn't want to do? Because sin is found somewhere else, not in his innermost being, but in his outer man, in his flesh. There it dwells. It resides. You see, that's what he means when he says it dwells. It takes up its residence, and not only that, as it does so, And we'll see this more clearly next time. It is exerting a powerful influence over the man himself. A powerful and abiding influence over him. Number five, it is this which robs him of the ability to do the good. Or at least we could say which frustrates his desire. Paul is not saying, and I don't read anyone uh, who goes quite this far at least on the side of the view I'm defending, Paul is not saying, I never do the good. What he's saying is that I'm frustrated in my desire to do the good. Martin Lloyd-Jones says sin is a terrible power. Or as I've uh, stated it several times, sin is a menace. It's a destructive force uh, in someone's life. It's a power which is always exerting its influence. It's always working uh, death, not life. And what Paul is actually saying, speaking of the power of sin in his life, is that it's more powerful even than his own will to the good. I want to do the good. I will to do it. But I'm held back. I'm kept from doing it. Why? Because of the power of sin in my life. Sin is a terrible power. If you, if, if you were to read Owen, this is the first major point that he makes. He talks of the power and the efficacy of it in our lives. He says, though its rule be broken, its strength weakened and impaired, its root mortified, yet it is a law still of great force and efficacy. In other words, sin is still uh, wreaking havoc in the believer's life. Number six. It is clear in all of this that Paul is not absolving himself. You might have thought that he was when he says, it isn't I who do it, but sin who dwells in me or which dwells in me. In other words, uh, don't blame me. I didn't want to do it. It was sin. Uh, 
That's not what he's after in verse 17 and verse 20. His interest is not to say, I am absolved, I am free of responsibility. Rather, uh, it's clear he's saying, the sin that I commit is my own. I'm the one who does it. I commit it. That which I do not want to do, I practice, he says. And thus, in condemning himself, which is what he's doing, he's vindicating the law. Since even as he breaks it, he agrees with it. That's his point. And he's showing, furthermore, how sinful sin must be if it is able to counter even the desire, the renewed desire of the new man. You remember what he says in verse 13. Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Yes, indeed, it is exceedingly sinful if it is even able to counter my desire and to cause me as a believer to do that which I do not wish to do. But the final inference is that he's clearing the law of all charge of wrongdoing. It's not the law that brings this about, it's sin. The sin that dwells in me. That is the sole explanation of this frustrating experience. And so we have a portrait of sin dwelling in the believer. Again, let us be clear. Not the believer dwelling in sin, but sin dwelling in the believer. And as it does so, it is exerting this powerful, contrary influence. The problem, Paul is saying, is not my will. I want to do the good. The problem... And the explanation is the power of indwelling sin, which he finds and which I find in myself. That is why he sins. It isn't that I want to sin. No, that isn't the reason. It's that sin still resides in my person, that is, in my flesh. Now, to those who deny, those in the first camp from last time, that this is about the Christian even at his best. They say, can you imagine the Apostle Paul at his best at the time of writing this epistle, actually saying this about himself? I am carnal, sold under sin. To those who say this cannot be Paul and this cannot be a a, a description even of the average Christian man, I would ask them this question. How is it that they account for the presence and the power of indwelling sin in the believer? If not what Paul is saying here, how is it that they account for it in themselves? What verses do they go to? Do they see sin as a slight problem for the Christian? Now here I believe I found the real weakness in the view. For as I read them, uh, it becomes clear to me, at least from my own perspective, that they are minimizing the presence and the menace that sin is in our life. They are minimizing it. I would ask them, do they know nothing of this conflict, the battle, the ongoing battle that we have with sin? What is their biblical account for the problem of indwelling sin? What verses do they go to? If not this, I would go further. Perhaps you don't find this very compelling, but I do. Could Owen have ever written his great work based upon their view? Well, from this, I want to look at Galatians chapter 5, where we find uh, Paul saying this in verse 17. I uh, mentioned this briefly last time. Paul says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, as I read that, I find uh, a confirmation. I find Paul saying the same thing that I'm saying is the second view. What Paul is doing in verse 17 is speaking of a contrary will. There is the flesh on the one hand and the spirit. And these two are at odds. They are combatants in an, in, in an arena, and the arena is ourselves. We are the arena in which this combat is taking place. And, and 
And, and the, the contrary will is something, Paul says, that opposes the spirit. It's contrary to the spirit. It is a power in the life of the believer which is present and which frustrates his desire to walk in the spirit. Why is it so hard to walk in the spirit? Because of the flesh. The flesh there to counter it. And I would go further. It is a power uh, which resides in believers that not only frustrates his experience, but often prevails, leading him into sin. When I find again that I've fallen into sin, what is the, the explanation? It isn't, it isn't the Holy Spirit. It isn't the fact that I'm a new man or a Christian. It's that I've, I've gone against all of those things. And why did I ever do that? It's because of the flesh. If you go back to verse 13, you see Paul saying this. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul is there speaking of the flesh as something that is, uh, is not only residing in the believer, but it's seeking an opportunity to exert its influence and lead the believer into sin. That is the goal of the flesh. That's what it's aiming at. And it's not satisfied until it's succeeded. You, you could see it as a restless evil which resides in the believer. And, and what makes sin appear so sinful, once again, you find it here in verse 13, is that uh, the sin which resides in the believer is able even to take something that is good, our liberty in Jesus Christ, and to turn it to evil. That's how powerful sin is. It can make a believer use his liberty to harm his brother rather than to use his liberty to walk by love. You see, this is not hypothetical. This matches our experience and this necessitates the appeal itself. Sin is always distorting and twisting what is good. And this is precisely what often happens. Paul says, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He speaks further in verse 16 of the lusts of the flesh. I say then walk by the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. These lusts which are not only contrary to the spirit, but which are active. They are working effectually. They are seeking fulfillment. That's what he means when he says they're lusting. A desire present in the flesh. Which creates this yearning to sin in the believer. And not only that, but returning to verse 17. And this will come out uh, even clearer as we look next time at verses 21 and following of chapter 7. He's saying that uh, the lust of the flesh, the yearning to sin that the believer experiences in himself is most active precisely at the point that the spirit is most active in the believer. The flesh, the lusting of the flesh is exerting its greatest influence just at the moment that the spirit is exerting his greatest influence. The spirit rises up and leads a man on in righteousness. And in that very moment, the flesh rises up in opposition as a contrary power uh, to counter every move of the spirit. It's that sense in which I'm saying they're active combatants. One makes a move, another counters. The Spirit stirs up a love of God's law and a love of the saints and a love of obedience. And the, fly, the flesh rises up in opposition to these very things, stirring up a contrary desire to sin. This is the very reason 
It's something I found in my own experience. I wonder if you can agree that times where you're on the spiritual mountaintop are often the most dangerous times in the Christian life. That you're on the verge of a fall. Why is that? Because the flesh is seeking its opportunity in that very moment. It is the thing that is seeking to keep you from doing that which you wish. That's how Paul puts it in verse 13. That is, or excuse me, verse 17. That is what the Spirit is leading you to do. The flesh is a contrary principle present in you, the believer. It is called the flesh in verse, uh, throughout these verses, it is called uh, the place where sin dwells in Romans chapter 7. Now, I just described uh, an instance of this. Let me, let me offer other illustrations of this. Uh, though, as I say, we'll have more opportunity to explore this in the following sermon. At times, this takes on uh, extraordinary forms. The way that the flesh uh, stands up in opposition to the spirit is this mighty force in the believer's life. Uh, a famous example is that of Spurgeon. Before he was converted, his mind was filled with blasphemy. And then he was converted and he was released from these blasphemous thoughts. He was rejoicing in the Lord. Only he was perplexed to find very shortly on the heels of that, that the blasphemies returned to his mind. How did he account for this experience except for what Paul is saying here? That the spirit was flourishing, but the flesh wasn't dead yet. It was still alive. It was still exerting not only its influence, but its contrary influence. It was combating the spirit. Uh, There's a story, uh, a famous story of... Uh, William Tennant Jr. In the course of uh, his preaching ministry, there was a time he stood up to preach and uh, he could not overcome this overwhelming sense that the Bible was not the word of God. And this was prevailing in his mind until he cried out to God, God, have mercy on me and was able to preach a very powerful sermon. Uh, You you, you get the sense uh, from that of the ways in which these two powers are at odds uh, even even uh, in uh, the moments of spiritual elation. But at other times, I would say it takes an everyday mundane form. You know, when you think, well, it's time to pray and it's time to offer devoted a devoted season of prayer. Five minutes. I'm going to pray for five minutes. Can you even do that without the distracting thoughts flooding in? And how do you account for that? It's the flesh. You see, the flesh had no reason to take its up, uh, to bring about the, the distracting cares and thoughts until you started to pray. It was countering the spirit. It's the way you come into church and suddenly you say, on the way you thought, isn't it wonderful? We're going to sing hymns. We're going to listen to the Bible. And then, and then uh, you're sitting there and you think, how boring. I can't wait till it's over. What is it that accounts for that? I'm telling you, it's the flesh and the believer. And I would also go further. As I analyze these two principles that are present, I would say there is far too much worship today that appeals solely to the flesh and not to the spirit. That which appeals to the flesh, it is true, to the outer man will never seem boring. But, to, uh, but that which appeals to the inner man and the spirit will always seem boring. Well, I think that the church today is catering far too much, far too much to the flesh. And it ought to appeal solely to the inner man. Even if the carnal part of you says, you know, that was boring. It's always there, whether in this extraordinary way or a mundane way, always there to frustrate you, to hold you back, to keep you from doing what you should be doing or what you want to be doing. 
It's there to frustrate your desire and to hold you back. But at the same time, at the same time, Paul will also say that there is a solution to the problem which is not found in me. It's not found in the law, nor is it found in the cry of defeat, though surely that is part of the experience. It's not found in resignation. Resignation is not the solution. Oh, you know, it'll always be like this. No, the answer, and I'm previewing where Paul will later go, is found in the Spirit himself, who also dwells in the believer. And who is more powerful by far. The, The Christian life is not one of continual defeat. It is one of growing in grace. And yes, I am experiencing the power of the flesh to counter every move of the Spirit. But what I am discovering as I go on in the Christian life, And what I hope you're discovering even now this morning is that the spirit is always more powerful in the believer. And so, yes, they are active combatants in you. Sin which dwells in you, the spirit who dwells in you. But how much more powerful is the Holy Spirit in the believer? And that's the answer. That's where victory will be found, as Paul later says in verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And he'll continue to go on along those lines. Walk by the spirit. Be full of the spirit. Be full of the fruit of the spirit. Realize that though you are renewed and yet sin still dwells in your flesh, the spirit dwells in you. Well, there's so much more I could say at this point. I had better save it for another sermon. Let me just close by saying this. When I look at what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, or excuse me, uh, no, no, that's right, verses 15 through 20. And then when I compare what he says in Galatians chapter 5, and then I look at myself, or I read Christian biographies, what I find is uh, what I would call so many confirmations that Paul is here speaking as a believer. And frankly, I do not understand the man. Uh, Even if that man is my most beloved, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I do not understand the man who says that Paul is not. Indeed, a confirmation that Paul is speaking here as a mature believer, not not just reflecting as uh, one who is newly converted. But no, at the very height of his ministry, he's saying this. This is what Paul feels. This is what we all feel in the midst of battle. But I go beyond Paul to myself and I speak to you as well. And I ask again, as I asked last time, what believer does not know exactly the thing I've been describing? Namely, this sense of frustration, this sense of a contrary power, something that's holding me back, keeping me from doing what I want. And that which is causing me to do the very thing I don't want to do. Something which is countering my will at every point, something that is countering the spirit. In other words, Paul is answering the question, plain and simple. Why do we still sin? If we've been renewed, if we are new men and women in Christ, why do we still sin? And if if, if we find, in fact, that we are, are bound to go on in sin, if sin is inevitable, is not such an experience bound to perplex and frustrate and even at times arouse in our own sense and our own experience a sense of defeat? Let me restate again. Sin is a menace. Paul is not describing a minor frustration. He is describing a terrible force in his life. 
Something which perplexes him about himself. Something which drives him nearly to the point of despair. I don't understand myself. Why am I like this? And what believer has not uttered that about himself? He was just flourishing in the spirit and the next moment he's fallen into sin. How did that ever come about? But let us see that there is at the same time never a sense of total despair nor of total defeat. Nor do we find Paul himself saying that here in Romans chapter 7. Of himself, yes, it is true. When I look at myself, I conclude that I am hopeless. For there is still in me too much sin for me ever to find hope in myself. Too much sin which remains in me, which has taken up its residence in me, which dwells in me and is exerting its influence and power. But that isn't the whole story, Paul says. For there's still Jesus Christ himself for whom I thank God always. Even when I'm beaten down and defeated, I've fallen into sin. What do I say? Well, I say this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And yet in the very same moment, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, even in the moment of defeat, there is Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of him. You look to yourself and you find that you do not have the resources to keep the law of God. You find uh, an overwhelming abundance of sin, an alarming presence of sin. But even then, I thank God through Jesus Christ. For he is the one who delivers me now. And he is the one who will deliver my body in the resurrection. There is not only that, but there is the Holy Spirit at work in me, dwelling in me. In other words... The whole experience we are considering uh, here brings us right back to chapter 5, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through Jesus Christ, or, or to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I prefer the, uh, the newer translations, grace abounded all the more. The answer isn't the law. That's what Paul wants us to see. The answer is always grace. And even when I find in myself as a believer that sin is abounding, it's still abounding. I can't believe it, but it really is. Grace is abounding all the more. And thus we remain engaged in the battle, often beaten down, often defeated. It is true. And yet going on little by little, gaining the victory, not of ourselves, but through Jesus Christ himself, who is at work in us by his grace through the Holy Spirit. More on that in sermons to come. But let us uh, come to the table now. to look at Luke's gospel. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Well, uh, let me just say this. I am aware of the tendency in examining ourselves to say, uh, am I Judas? Am I the one who is Jesus' betrayer? And I'm aware even in this congregation of those of you who abstain from the Lord's Supper, uh, at least two, uh, as a result of this kind of self-examination. Uh, and I, I would uh, invite believers to the table, even those whose hearts still are full of doubt, perhaps because of the presence of a prevailing power of sin in your life. Well, I've been telling you, I've been trying to tell you, I'm describing the believer, not the unbeliever. Just the fact that you find a contrary desire in your heart is reason enough to believe that you are a believer. And yet you examine yourself and you wonder and you doubt. Well, I want to read something from the book. The book says, of course, an unbeliever should not come. He must not come. He's told in scripture never to come. But the believer who doubts himself and examining, examining himself, asking himself, well, am I Judas? Am I the betrayer whose hand is found at the table? This warning is I'm reading from the book is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord as if it were for those who were free from sin. In fact, it is for sinners that our Lord gives the supper as a means of grace. Through the elements of bread and wine, our Lord graciously gives himself and all his benefits to everyone who eats and drinks in a worthy manner, discerning the body of the Lord. It is one thing to eat and drink in a worthy manner. It is very different, however, to imagine that we are worthy to eat and drink. We dare not come to the Lord's table if we were worthy and righteous in ourselves. We come in a worthy manner if we recognize that we are unworthy sinners who need our Savior. If we consciously discern his body given for our sins. If we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merit, feeding on him by faith, renewing our covenant with him and his people. Let us examine our minds and hearts to determine whether such discernment is ours to the end that we may partake to the glory of God and to our growth in the grace of Christ. Come then with joy and thankfulness to the Lord's table. The Lord's supper is medicine for poor sick souls. Come to Jesus and find rest, refreshment and nourishment for your weak and weary soul. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we're thankful for this means of grace for we are uh, sinful it's difficult at times to utter it. We almost fear that we're minimizing your grace, and yet we know it's true. There is still this, this great part of our being called the flesh, which is, which is sinful. Sin is dwelling there. It's exerting its power, its influence. It's even bringing us into sin. In this very moment, we are kept from doing our full desire, which is to worship you, free from any hindrance, from any distraction. And we are led even, as we read here, to, to despair of ourselves, to wonder, am I Judas? Am I, am I worthy to come to the table? But we aren't told to be worthy to come. We're told to come in a worthy manner. What a difference that is. Just to say, do you have faith? Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you coming in faith or are you still coming in the flesh? Well, if you're coming in the flesh, then don't come. But God, if there is any faith at all, how I pray you would give each of us the faith to partake and to receive from Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we ask this in his name. Amen.